0: Okay. Thanks, so. Thank you. Pastor, we need a bigger pulpit. We need somewhere we can put the Bible and the, all your notes, everything scattered around, maybe a place with a laptop would be really good. Let's uh, let's just open in prayer, can we? Father, we just thank you for this wonderful time and a wonderful opportunity to share your word to my brothers and sisters here. During these times, dear Lord, there is many questions. and Father, I pray that this service would be a wonderful blessing, that many of those questions might be answered, and that in every way, dear Lord, we can live a life glorifying to our Lord and God and be more fervent in the gospel, fervent in the sharing of the truth of the cross, and fervent in our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, presenting him to all nations and to all peoples, regardless of what it might bring to ourselves in this present time. Father, I pray for you to be with me now. And uh, as I share this wonderful word, in Jesus' name, Amen. I'm feeling really emotional this morning. I don't know exactly why. Where's Melinda when you need her? You know, she's got the box of tissues usually here. But um, I'm going to be starting to uh, preach on the book of Romans, whatever opportunity gives me to be able to preach on this incredible book. I'm going to introduce it today when I started thinking about what I was going to be preaching on and I thought, yeah, no worries, I'll go through the first chapter maybe you might need two, two mornings, you know and then as I looked at from verse 1 to 16 started realizing there's, there's no way I'm going to be able to preach that in one morning so I thought I'd, I'd break it down into its little sets, you know and so the first one was 1 to 6 and uh, there's no way no, I'm not going to be able to preach that in one morning so I thought, no worries, no worries. Look, there's a, there's a nice definite break there with, with uh, you know, one to four, you know, so I'll just preach on those four. There's no hope I'm going to be able to preach on those four. So I looked at the first two, and we're going to pray that I can actually get through the first two, the first two verses of the book of Romans, but I want to introduce it first. There's a book written by the Apostle Paul, but... Mm-hmm. There's a couple of quotes that I want to be able to share with you about what men have said about this incredible book, a book that has been recognised and identified as a real high point of the the New Testament. the 16th century, Martin Luther, who was a monk, Catholic monk, who was teaching the Book of of Romans to students at the University of Wittenberg in Germany. As he was studying the text, it's important to realise that Martin Luther wasn't saved while he was actually teaching, the book of Romans. And um, he started to be convicted more and more by Paul's continuous theme of the justification by faith alone. And he wrote this, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole scripture took on a new meaning and whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love This passage of Paul became to me a gateway to heaven. But he's not the only one. One of the things I want you to recognise with Martin Luther is that the realisation that the just shall live by faith spurred on a reformation within Christianity, within Christendom during that time. And he nailed his 95 Theses to to uh, to the door of Wittenberg on October 31st in 1517. October 31st happens to be Halloween. I don't know if there's any significance there, but you can ponder that. Several centuries later, a minister of the Church of England named John Wesley, confused about the meaning of the gospel and was searching for a genuine spirit experience of salvation. John Wesley is an interesting character. He had a massive debate with George Whitfield. George Whitfield already believed what he believed, and they wrote to and fro, and you want to see some of the letters that they wrote to each other. I mean, you know, we're worried about debating theology with people because we don't want to offend anybody. These two men went hanger and hammer and tongs at it. And it was just... It's incredible. Um, one of the letters was by George Whitfield, and it says, uh, No, sir, you mistake. That was the title of it, and it goes into this incredible exposition. It was wonderful. But... Um, he says this. He says, I went unwittingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine. And saved me from the law of sin and death. John Calvin said, When anyone gains a knowledge of this epistle, he has an entrance open to him to all the most hidden treasures of Scripture. This is his introduction to the commentaries on the epistle to the, of Paul to the Romans. Martin Luther, regarding the same uh, commentary to, his, to, uh, to the epistle of the Romans, said, Romans is the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel. Frederick Goddard, the uh, noted Swiss Bible commentator, called Romans the Cathedral of Christian Faith. William Tyndale, in the entrance to his commentary on the book of Romans, wrote, For as much as this epistle is the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament, and pure evangelion, that is to say, glad tidings, and that we call gospel, and also a light in a way into, a whole, into the whole scripture, I think it meet that every Christian man not only know it by rote and without the book, but also exercise himself therein ever more continually, and with the daily bread of the soul. No man verily can read it too oft or study it too well, for the more it is studied, the easier it is, the more it is chewed, the pleasanter it is, and the more groundly it is searched, the preciouser things are found in it. So great treasure of spiritual things lieth hid therein. Finally only Don Gray Barnhouse, and he wrote a five-volume book, and it's roughly about that thick if you've got them all together. And that's a small one. There's a ten-volume set. That somebody else wrote that. I can't remember who the author is, but he writes this at the entrance. He says, A scientist may say a mother's milk is the purest, is the most perfect food known to man, and may give you an analysis showing all its chemical components, a list of the vitamins it contains, and an estimate of the calories in each given quantity. A baby... Will take that milk without the remotest knowledge of its content, and will grow day by day, smiling and thriving in its ignorance. So it is with the profound truths of the Word of God, specifically the book of Romans is what he 's relating to it 's been said that Romans will delight the greatest logician and captivate the mind of the consummate genius, yet it will bring tears of the humblest soul and re- tears to the humblest soul and refreshment to the simplest minds. It will knock you down and then lift you up, it will strip you naked, then clothe you with eternal elegance. Incredible. The book of Romans took a Bedford tinker like John Bunyan and turned him into the spiritual giant and literary master who wrote the Pilgrim's Progress and the Holy War. Another author said, The book of Romans is the most complete and penetrating statement of God's divine plan for the redemption that God has given us. The Book of Romans indeed contains the greatest concentration of truth found in the Bible, and will indeed grow your faith and life without you knowing it. It's been said to have sparked the greatest revivals of all, as well as some of the greatest doctrinal discussions, one of which we're going to touch on this morning, which is implicated in the first verse. Last note this anonymous poet wrote this, and it's worth worth considering as we strive for ourselves to get closer to God what God has actually done for us. It's a poem, and he says, Oh, long and dark the stairs I trod with trembling feet to find my God, gaining a foothold bit by bit, then slipping back and losing it, never progressing, striving still with weakening grasp and faltering will, bleeding to climb to God while he serenely smiled, unnoting me. Then came a certain time when I loosed my hold and fell thereby, down to the lowest step my fall, as if I had not climbed at all. Now when I lay despairing there, listening, a foothold on the stair. On that same stair where I, afraid, faltered and fell and lay dismayed, and lo, when hope had ceased to be. My God came down the stairs to me. This is the wonderful truth of the book of Romans. Romans. It's the truth of the gospel presented in its purest form that our God came down to us, not us to him. And it's a wonderful picture of our salvation and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. In a nutshell, the grace of God is revealed. It reveals his righteousness. It reveals our iniquity and his remedy through grace. I personally don't believe we can ever exhaust nor plummet the full depths of this book. Someone, ever once said that a God small enough for our mind would not be big enough for our need... Really true, isn't it? You look through the Bible and I know a lot of you will be reading it and you would be thinking, I don't understand, I don't understand. Keep reading. I don't understand, but keep reading. But I still don't understand. Keep reading. Have faith and know that the book, the Bible itself, has the ability to grow you without you even recognising it. Trust in it and let it be your daily bread. Because indeed, if you were to be able to understand everything within it, and even one of the doctrines that we're going to be just touching on this morning then, um, uh, like he said, a God that's small enough for our mind is not necessarily going to be big enough for our need. So, if you can open to the book of Romans, please. Chapter 1. Book of Romans, chapter 1. And we're just going to read through to verse 4. So if you found your place, Romans chapter 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Let's just keep reading a moment more. Among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What's incredible is that just within this, within the first four verses of the book of Romans, you've got such a powerhouse of doctrine. There's so much already being taught just there within within the scripture. It's almost like God has said, right, you've read the rest of the book, Now's the test. Bring this out. Understand it. And it's a challenge right at the very, very beginning. And when you look at it, you think of Paul just for a moment. Paul himself didn't believe that he would be one that should be blessed with any honour. Speaking of himself in 1 Corinthians 15.9, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, but I am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul, as Saul, set himself as a prime enemy of God known as one, of, one who was the destroyer of the church in Acts 9.21 and would wreak havoc of the church in Acts 8.3 and who himself said also, and I persecuted this way unto death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women in Acts 22.4. Still speaking of himself, he calls himself the chief of sinners. In First 1 Timothy 1.15 he says, And this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And here we find him, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Donald Gray Barnhouse said something really interesting. He said, Let not any man despair. If God could stoop to pick out the man who had been his greatest enemy and call and equip him to be his greatest messenger, then no one need feel that he may not be reached of God. It's encouraging, isn't it? You think of the man that was known as the chief of sinners. And notice what he says. He says, I am the chief of sinners. It's spoken in the present tense. And yet oftentimes we sit there struggling for ourselves. Oh, God won't love me. We struggle with our own insecurities. I mean, insecurity kills us. It comes and manifests itself in so many different ways. It manifests itself in, in being a people pleaser. You want, to, you want to please other people in order to be accepted. Might show itself as pride. Ah, oh, pride's a huge one. You know, it's one that I struggle with a lot because I have insecurities too. You know, it's it's forgetting that we have one in whom we are absolutely secure, and he is the absolute perfect picture of our security, just being willing to die for me. So in that I have to have perfect security, it's absolute security, and it's something that we see with Paul. Not even meet to be called an apostle, he says. The chief of sinners, he says. And yet we're here struggling from day to day, worried about who's going to approve of me, who's not going to approve of me, who's going to like me, who's not going to like me. We don't share the gospel because of that very reason, guys. Because of the very reason of our own lack of worth, of self-worth. And yeah, indeed, the Bible does. It brings out we are indeed the most wretched You know, Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 7, doesn't he? He says, a wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And then he finishes it off with, thanks be to my Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. You know, you have security in him. Nothing, nothing can ever take that away. It's security in our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. It's what he's done, not what you've done. You can't do enough good. You just can't. And that's where that poem came in really helpful. But you know, he's the one in the New Testament. There was another high point in the Old Testament. A lot of people claim that the book of Isaiah probably reaches the highest point in the Old Testament. As far as it's, it's just its depth and its characteristic representations of who God is. And look what Isaiah says about himself. He says, Behold, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He himself recognised himself not worthy to be even called a prophet in that respect. And yet God had called him. But have a look. In two points we've got Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. What is a servant? A servant is someone who is willing to serve, yes? But he characteristically names himself that. That is who I am. I am a servant of Jesus Christ. Did that have anything to do with his employment? No, the Bible teaches us that he was a tent maker. He made tents. He did that work to ensure that he provides an income. He didn't want to go through and take funds from the churches because his calling particular was that. Now, the Bible does indeed teach that those that are to preach the gospel are indeed to live of the gospel. We're not taking that away at all. But Paul decided that for him himself, he would not. But he references himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. A lot of you have got different jobs but are you servants of Jesus Christ? Friends, if you're a Sunday school teacher and you're a legal secretary, what's your job? You're a servant of Jesus Christ. Recognising the importance of this service is the one that's going to give you the greatest reward for all eternity. Your legal secretary position is going to be one that will sustain you and help the family. But your role, your identification is as a servant of Jesus Christ. Even Isaiah, the Lord says, in Isaiah 6, it says, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then, according to his own free will, according to his own decision, he says, Then said I, here am I, send me. Wow! I mean, a man thought of himself as a man of unclean lips, dwelling among a people of unclean lips. And yet all he did was put up his hand. I'm not worth anything to myself. I'm not worth anything to myself. Here am I. Send me. Would you? Would you raise your hand and say, here am I. Send me. As Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. But then incredibly moves on from there, and it doesn't leave us alone with this. He says, a Paul, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, and it says, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. We have the introduction of this incredible doctrine, a doctrine that we can't fully understand, but you'll know where I'm going as I move on with this. Paul has willingly given himself completely and fully as a servant, yes? We often recognise that there's some new versions, Bible versions, that call it as a bond slave. Or they say that he's a slave of Jesus Christ. No, no, no. A slave is not there under their own will. A bond slave is one that has willingly given himself over. Yes, that's true. In the olden days, we know that one who has reached a particular point in his service to his master at that particular time was set free. But then willingly, according to his own free will, will then say, no, I am wanting to serve my master in this house forever. And they would nail his ear to the door of the house. Some of you might have seen the old films, you know, those gypsy-looking guys with the big earrings in their ears? These people were looked up to. They were the the head people within that house as servants, but they willingly gave themselves over. Unfortunately, these new translations make it difficult for us to understand what on earth a bond slave is unless you've got a priest standing in the front here telling you what a bond slave is. But here we have the scripture really plain for us. He's a servant, one who willingly gives himself completely over. And the next portion of the same verse we see he's called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. So what's the nature of this calling? So he's a servant. He's called and separated. This calling is according only to the choosing of Jesus Christ. It's the Lord our Saviour Jesus Christ that chooses men. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 9 just for a moment. Acts chapter 9. Verse 15 is what we'll concern ourselves with here. 15 and 16. Speaking to Ananias, the Lord says, But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. He's speaking of the Apostle Paul. This man was a little bit concerned about him because he remembers him as Saul of Tarsus. The one that had actually persecuted the church. The one that took people away. So there was a great deal of fear. But before that, the Lord actually says, for behold, he prayeth. Oh, what a distinction. Lord hears the prayers of Saul of Tarsus. Now Paul, or recognised as Paul, identified in scripture. And he says, he's a chosen vessel unto me. And it doesn't stop there. When our Lord Jesus Christ speaks about his disciples in John fifteen sixteen, he says, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. But Paul here is also separated. He speaks of himself as a separated man. Now remember, when you're separated, you're separated from something to something. Or you're at least in the motion of moving from something towards something else. The old idea is you can't leave, you can't grab second base without leaving first. And that's very, very true. But in this way, we have Paul separated and separated for a specific purpose. It's a parting of the ways. It's leaving of one from another. We see the first time this is mentioned is in Genesis 13, where Lot is separated from Abraham. There's a parting of the ways you certainly can't be moving toward another without leaving the one. Have a look at Acts chapter 13. If you've still got your finger in Acts, turn to Acts chapter 13. It says, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. When was Paul separated? As far as Paul is concerned, identified with Paul, when was he separated? Turn to the book of Galatians just for a moment. Galatians chapter 1. What I want you to see here is the beginning of a doctrine that I just want to elaborate only for a moment. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because it's not fully, it's not fully shown within this verse, but it is there and it does find itself elsewhere. So I do want to enter into it just because I don't want to, I don't want to skip the implications of what's already there. So Galatians chapter 1, look at verse 15 and 16. Paul speaking, he says, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, and what was the purpose? To reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen. Immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Paul was separated from the beginning. From the beginning called by God while not having done any good or evil. This is important as we recognise it again that the coming verses, we see the sovereignty of God and election already beginning to present itself. The Bible says we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Please understand, there's a lot of um, commentators out there that, that try... As hard as they can to excuse this position, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Paul recognises himself as a servant. Isaiah also, send me. We see their free will. We see that clearly. That is their own will, their own desire. That's what they're putting their arm up for. It's their free will. But men have believed that God elects according to his foreknowledge. In other words, he knows the decision that I was going to be making ahead of time and therefore made his plans according to me. Does that make sense to you? God would organise and orchestrate his plans according to the whim of a fallible, sinful people. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't fit. It's according to the foreknowledge of God, his plan. He foreordained, he elected, he chose. We've got some great Bibles that came recently, and they're fantastic. Unfortunately, I can't agree with some of the notes, because in the notes it actually teaches exactly that, that it was based on his foreknowledge, knowing what we were going to do ahead of time, and then making their plans to suit. The Bible doesn't present that at all. It's, they're, look, they're fantastic Bibles. Please don't get me wrong. I've decided to read the whole thing and read all the notes, and mate, I've received such an incredible blessing out of those Bibles, and they are wonderful. But remember, those notes aren't inspired, please. okay, It's the text that we're concerning ourselves with, so make sure what you're reading fits the text. The sovereignty of God and man's free will. Hey? Incredible. How do you reconcile this? From the very beginning we see this issue coming forward. And it's presented right here within the first part of the first verse. Paul, the servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. If you want to look at that, the more you look at that, you think, hang on a second, he's a servant and he's called and he's separated. Who separated him? Who called him? Okay? It is presented right there. And we see it. Pelagius and Augustine. Circa 300 AD. Big Big debate. Man's free will or the sovereignty of God? Which one is true? God is perfectly in control of all things or man has the free will to choose all things? Which is true. Which is true. Same debate we've got with with James Arminius and John Calvin around about 1500 AD. Exactly the same debate. Man's free will. Absolutely, 100%. He is free to do whatever he chooses to do. And God has then the right to judge him according to the things that he does. Makes sense, Yes makes perfect sense. And then we've got the Bible teaching us that God judges and therefore judges and according to his will. And God is therefore sovereign. He is perfectly in control. So which is it? Now, if you continue with the line of of what John Calvin seemed to be teaching at that time and the extreme view, which he didn't espouse, but many people take the logical conclusion, and that is that God is the orchestra of evil. He chooses who's going to be saved and he chooses who will be damned. It's an idea called double predestination. You don't find double predestination anywhere in the scripture, but there's a double predestination. Some are chosen and predestined to salvation and others are chosen and predestined to damnation. Does that sound like your Lord? What we find in scripture is something incredible and I want you to have a look at this and we'll just talk about the free will just for a second. Isaiah, free will, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I. Send me. We see the free will. The nature of God's commandments and the nature of his righteousness. How can God rightly command us to do something which he has already determined we're going to do? He's given us the commandments. For what purpose do the commandments come? For us to obey? Or are we like puppets that we, you know, try and fulfil those commandments? And what reason and what right does he have to judge us for not fulfilling those commandments to which he already had control? This is really difficult. How, how do you do this? The nature of God's commandments shows that we have a free will. Moses' debate with God, turn to Genesis 18, please. Turn to Genesis chapter 18. I'm go through a little bit of an excursion, but it's, I just want, again, I wanted to touch on this, and like I said, I'm still praying that I can get through both verses. Genesis chapter 18. Go down to verse 20. Okay, and the Lord said because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which is come unto me and if not, I will know. What's God doing? He's going down to see whether they have done according to the cry of it. Does God not know? Oh, God knows. God knows, but we have it presented that he's going to be judging according to what he sees. And the Lord said because... and He says that and then verse 22... And the men turned their faces from thence and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. And listen to what Abraham said. He says, And Abraham drew near and said, Would they also destroy the righteous with the wicked? You can almost see his Jewishness coming out here. you know. But have a look at what he says. This is the logic. Look at the logic. I want you to think he's logically making a case here. okay? Because who? Who's he got in that city? Anyone? Lot. He's got Lot in there. Lot's in there. Right, so he's trying to make a case here. You know, God's going to de- he's going to destroy a city where my my, uh, my nephew's in there. You know, so he uh, he says. You know, he says. Um, the wind changed my page. Twenty three, and Abraham drew near and said, "Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure there be fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are therein?" That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked, that be far from thee, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? What's the implication of that? That the judge of all the earth does right, yes. He judges according to the deeds of men, yes. It makes perfect sense. It's clear. That is the nature of my Lord. That is the nature of the God who we worship. When I first came to this church, one of the questions that I asked Pastor Frank was exactly this. The very first question that I asked when he came over to our home was, so, what do you reckon? Sovereignty of God, free will. You know what he said? Yes. Okay, so, which? Yes. He recognised what I discovered in the scripture as well. That other than the idea of Mr Chuck Missler, who I really enjoy a lot of the stuff that he teaches, and I do enjoy them, who says that he believes that the truth comes between those two mountains. It's like a river streaming between those two mountains. Sovereignty of God, free will of man, and somewhere in between. No, it's one mountain. The Bible teaches the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. How do they reconcile? How do they reconcile? Well, one of the things that you're going to discover, turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. You know, if it's going to reconcile anywhere, it's going to reconcile in Romans chapter 9 because Paul has, in this particular position, the perfect opportunity to be able to reconcile this doctrine. Go down to verse... um, Go down to verse 9. It says, For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. And it was said unto her, the elders shall serve... Did you see that? Right, According to election might stand. They haven't done good or evil. Do you recognise that? They haven't even been born yet. And God says in the Old Testament, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. They haven't even been born yet. Go on, verse 12. And it was said unto the elder to serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Now, remember the question that you should be having within your mind right now. When you recognise the sovereignty of God... You have to have this question in your mind. Paul identifies the question, recognises the question, doesn't slide over it or go under it. He brings it right out into the open. Have a look at the question. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that sheweth mercy. For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might shew my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy and on, whom he will, he hardeneth. Then thou wilt say unto me, Why does he yet find fault? For who has resisted his will? Do you, you see the question? Why, can, why does God judge? Why does he yet find fault? Why can he blame me for doing something evil when that's probably his will? And a lot of Christians actually excuse their own activities thinking that God is the one that's actually causing them to do this. This is no lie. They're excusing their own behaviour, believing that God is the one that's sovereign and in control and therefore forcing them to sin. But what does the scripture say in James? It actually says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God could not tempt with evil. Cannot, cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. So you understand, you can't accept one particular idea without rejecting what the scripture is already teaching. All right? How does he answer this? How did he answer this? You think that now he's going to answer it clearly so we can understand, yes? No. Verse 20. No, but, I man, who art thou that replies against God? Shall the thing form? Say so to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? Hath not, got, hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honour and another unto dishonour? What if God, willing to shew his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory? The scripture doesn't reconcile it, does It, it doesn't reconcile. That is the clearest position in scripture. That is the clearest point in the Bible where Paul has the perfect opportunity to reconcile this doctrine of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. We know that he's sovereign. Jeremiah 25, 9. It's incredible. God uses someone to judge Israel, the people of Israel. And he actually calls him his servant. He says, Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, saith the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land and against the inhabitants thereof and against all these nations round about and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment and a hissing and a perpetual desolation. God is sovereign. The Bible says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. And then he goes on, he says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. He says he's bringing a ravenous bird from the east and the man that executes his counsel from a far country. God is perfectly sovereign. It's presented in scripture. So the idea of the free will of man subjected to the sovereignty of God doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. You can't have the free will of man and completely ignore the sovereignty of God. How are you going to pray? How are you going to pray? Think about the extreme Calvinist position just for a second because I want you to recognize that this implicates prayer. Okay, If you're an extreme Calvinist, if you believe that you are predestined to salvation and that God will choose you to damnation as well, how does that affect your prayer life? How are you going to pray for your family? Oh, well, you know, and Pastor Frank mentioned that to me, he was talking to to a person a while ago. He said, well, you know, if he's predestined, if he's elected, then he'll be saved. Don't have to pray for him. Really? He's not praying for his son because he believes this foolishness that somehow they don't need to be prayed for because he believes the sovereignty of God apart from the free will of man, okay? So now all of a sudden you can't pray for your family because, hey, God's sovereign, he's in control, what's the point of praying? What's the point of praying? Why pray for the people overseas? Why pray for the people in Japan? If God is only going to do whatever he's going to do anyway, what's the point exactly? What happens to a, the prayer life of the Presbyterian that believes this position? What happens to it? It's logical, isn't it? becomes dwindled. Alright, let's have a look at it the other way for a second. What about the prayer life of the man that believes the Arminian position? The free will of man. Free will of man above everything else. What happens to your prayer life exactly? How are you going to pray for your spouse? How are you going to pray for your child? What are you going to do? Are you Are going to interfere with their free will? What are you praying for? Are you praying that God is going to interfere with their free will to draw them unto salvation? Isn't that what Jesus says? No man can come to me unless the Father draw him. And all of a sudden now you're going to interrupt that free will and pray for him to come to salvation when you know that he has a free will. How are you going to pray? You can't pray, guys. The only position that you can accept is the one the scripture teaches And don't worry about trying to reconcile it, because this side of eternity we can't. The only position to trust in, that you can pray fervently with all your heart, and with all your mind, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. The only way you can do it is accepting that doctrinal position the scripture teaches. Man has a free will and will be perfectly, wholly, fully, totally accountable. And God has perfect control over every breath you take. When you understand that both of those are presented in scripture, when you understand that God is wonderfully in control and can therefore answer prayer, then you have a prayer life that is greater than you've ever had before. Because now you're understanding what the Bible teaches. You can't do it the other way. You can't do it the other way. Logically, it's a fallacy. It doesn't work. Now that I've finished with that, I've got 10 minutes to do the next bit. And there's a lot that I could have gone into. I've put so many notes in here. You've got when he's, he's called Cyrus, his shepherd. Look at what he's done with Nebuchadnezzar. He's actually said, I'm going to take you away, so I'm going to send a nation to judge you, take you into Babylon, and then I'm going to judge that nation from taking you into Babylon. How does that work? You know? And it goes on. And look, once you believe this, it's nowhere you can go in Scripture where you don't see man's free will, God's sovereignty. Know where you can go. It's all there. It's right through. The title of the message was Absolute Security and Absolute Hope. We have absolute security in the knowledge that God is absolutely able and capable. So the next part of this, verse 2, verse 2. I want you to notice something that verse 2 is in parentheses. If verse 2 didn't exist, it wouldn't change one thing of that text. Not a single thing, it'll flow perfectly. Paul, the servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, concerning his Son Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, etc. You notice? You don't need the parenthesis for the flow. What's the parenthesis there for? It's an explanatory note. It's there for a purpose. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. What's the gospel of God? Which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Have a look at this. It's incredible. You've got the promise. What's the message? What's the nature of this message? He says, Paul speaks now about the security of it, right? The security of it, the promise. That's the security. That's the security we have. He also speaks of the antiquity of this message. Promised when? Promised before. Promised before, it says. So it's the antiquity of the message. We have the security of the message in the promise. We have the antiquity of the message in a four. It was promised a while ago. What's the means of it? by his prophets, that was the means and what's the authority of it in the holy scriptures only two places in the entire bible the word holy scriptures is put together it's only two places and it's both by Paul, one's found here, the other one's in Second Timothy 315. 3.15 I thought it was 3.15 I might have the wrong note, where Timothy before knew of the holy scriptures okay? which scriptures is he talking about Old Testament yeah? that's what he's speaking about so first, let's have a look at the antiquity of the gospel. We recognise as the gospel that must be already ancient. What we're trying to decide here, what we're trying to find out is what is the nature of this gospel. It's the gospel of God. In Acts 17, 11, the Bible says that these were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Now, Paul was preaching at this particular point. He was preaching to a people called the Bereans, known as the Bereans. He was preaching in Berea. And he speaks of them and he says, those were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind And search the scriptures daily whether those things were so. They were testing the teaching of the Apostle Paul according to the teaching that they already had in the Old Testament. Tell me the old, old story. This old, old story, this wonderful hymn that we sung is there, present in the Old Testament. What is that old, old story? In John 5.39, Jesus says, He says, search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. He's speaking about the gospel. What is the gospel? Or maybe more to the question, who is the gospel? How old is the gospel? Go to Isaiah 53 just for a second. Isaiah, around about 550 BC. 550 BC approximately is when Isaiah was writing. I want you to see if you can recognise the gospel within this. I'll try not to read the whole chapter, but it's pretty hard because it's fairly deep. But I want you to see if you can recognise the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to see if you can recognise the gospel in this. Sorry, the answer slipped out. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. Have a look at this. And while we, and all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Did the Lord our God give a defence for his behaviour? Did he give a defence for his actions? Did he give a defence at all when he spoke to Pilate? No. He didn't speak, remember? Verse 8, he was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? Did Jesus have any children? Oh, not unless you've read Holy Book, Holy Grail, or you've gone to watch Dan Brown films or anything like that. No, he did not have any children. For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Uh, Who was hanging with him on the cross? Wicked men, yeah? Where was he buried? In a rich man's tomb, yes? Interesting. 550 years before he was even born of the flesh. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. The Gospel. 550 BC. But is it any older? Do we see it any older? Let's have a look at Psalm 22. Psalm 22 was written by... It's a Psalm of David. David lived roughly about 1000 BC. Let's see if we can identify the gospel there, perhaps. let you have a look at verse 1 for a second, see if you recognise these words. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Go down to verse 7. All they that see me laugh at me, laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake their head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. Anybody remember the books, the Gospels, the man at the base of the cross, what they said to the Lord Jesus Christ while he was hanging there? Have a look at verse 12. We'll go 12 to 18. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. That's also in there. They gaped upon me with their mouths as ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. Did the Lord not say I thirst? And thou hast brought me into the dust of the earth. For dogs have come past me and the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. 600 years before the invention of crucifixion, we have an interesting hint of it here. They pierced my hands and my feet. I I may tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Incredible, isn't it? How old is the gospel? How old is the gospel? Who is the gospel? Is it any older? The Lord said it was Older. He said in John 5.46, he says, For you believed Moses, you would also believe me, for he wrote of me. Well, let's have a look. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Moses wrote around about 1400 BC. Approximately 1400 BC. Go to the book of Deuteronomy. This is a time now where you guys are all starting to realise you really need tabs for your Bibles. 18, and verse 15. Moses says this, verse 15, he says, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him you shall hearken. You ever wondered who that prophet was that John the Baptist was speaking about? You know, when they asked him and they came to him and they asked him the question, who are you? Are you the Christ? And he says, I am not. And so, are you Elias? And he says, I am not. And he says, are you that prophet? No. Could this be that prophet? This is that prophet that he's speaking of. This is 1400 BC. Now, how old is it really? I mean, can we go any further back? Let's try a little bit more. I don't want to keep you too long, but I just want to try a little bit more. Go to Genesis chapter 22. Now this happened, obviously much later than the time of Deuteronomy, that wonderful sermon, or series of sermons that Moses did preach. Genesis chapter 22 was an interesting event. We're just going to skip along to a couple of verses in here because I want you to have a look at this. Verses 22, verse 1, he says, And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, I am, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. Go down to verse 8. While he was up there, Isaac was asking the question, Where's the lamb? We've got the wood. Where's the lamb? We've got the fire. Where's the lamb? Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. Modern translations actually say, My son, God will provide for himself a lamb. Ah, That's not what the text says. The text says, God will provide himself a lamb. Could it be a bit of a double meaning? God will provide himself as the Lamb. Well, a lot of believe that that is indeed the case. Go a little bit further down to verse 14. Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. He named that mount prophetically, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen and many as I believe that that was the very mount that our Lord was crucified on. He named the mount Jehovah-Jireh. Is that the gospel? This presentation of Isaac, is that the gospel? Is that a picture? Is that a hint? Is it any older? Man, how far back do you want to go? So we're now 1,400 years. Let's, that's 2,000 years now, the offering of Isaac. All right, let's go to the last place that I want to look at. I want you to understand something. The... The the prophecies of our Lord and Saviour coming the first time, there's over 300 of them. I haven't found them all. I'm told that there's over 300 of them. We've only touched on a couple of them here that give you quite an indication. Go to Genesis chapter 3 and right at the beginning we find an interesting situation where our Lord, our God, is casting judgment upon those that have deliberately disobeyed him and the woman that was deceived. And now he's speaking and he's addressing himself to the serpent himself. And he says in verse 15, And I will put enmity enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. What's interesting about this is the seed is not usually found in the woman, it's found in the man. Man is the seed. And yet here it's found in the woman. An interesting hint of a virgin birth, a thing that's only ever happened once naturally in history. It's only ever happened once. And if it was for not for that birth, then we could not claim salvation. We could not claim salvation because it had to be sinless blood. The gospel is our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is found in Scripture, it's found in the Old Testament. It was a presentation of the Lord Jesus Christ that the prophets were preaching about. They weren't preaching the gospel, they were preaching of the gospel. They were preaching a future picture of who will be the very gospel. It was the Lord Jesus Christ that came and then propagated the gospel out. And he came and commanded all of us, from the disciples first and all of us, to preach about him. Jesus Christ was the one that was ordained from the foundation of the earth. To bring salvation unto men. It is through Christ and Christ alone that we are saved. Guys, it's through Christ and Christ alone that we have security. It's through Christ and Christ alone that we have our hope. In closing, let me finish off with this. Yesterday we saw the impact of less than three minutes of movement within the crust of the earth. We witnessed the production and movement of an immense body of water beginning to travel at over 500 kilometres an hour towards the coast of Japan. Its impact tossed one-ton vehicles around like toys and reduced what appeared solid buildings into matchsticks. If any of you guys have watched those videos, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It was unbelievable, absolutely unbelievable, to watch those things actually occurring before our eyes. Of course, Japan's got the technology with the helicopters and some of these phones to basically take video anywhere. And we saw it so clearly, the devastation. This morning I got up and I had a look again. There's a satellite image of a town of which 10,000 people are unaccounted for. That town had a complete town. Hospital, you know, uh, government house building and houses and everything all around it. That was the before shot. The aftershock, the only thing that was there was the hospital. There was no trace of any other building. All gone. All gone. Water. A product that is recognised as a sustainer of life became its destroyer in less than an hour. took about 15 minutes after the quake. How well are you going to prepare yourself in 15 minutes exactly? Think about what it's going to take for you to think about what you need to bring with you, even if you had the warning. They would have had the warning, they would have had the warning only as much as the earthquake was concerned. But many would have been ignorant to the tsunami, even though they are well prepared over there, so perhaps many did know that it was going to be coming. What are the first things you're going to think of? You're going to be thinking about getting your kids together and your family together, and a lot of us are also then going to be going back. We want to get our photos, we want to get anything that we have of value, store them in the car. Think about how much time it's taking for that to happen. The tsunami was rolling in at 500-plus kilometres an hour, Until it hit the shallow waters where it started to slow down. There is no security found in this world. Our comfort, our way of life can shift in a moment, whether it be an earthquake or a car crash, a tsunami or a drug overdose, a cyclone or an illness. If we put our trust in this life only, we are of all men most miserable. Our trust and our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our faith, everything we stand for. We don't get together on Sunday mornings and just nick off, go home, and we live for ourselves the rest of the time. What are you doing? Completely wasting your time. You you don't realise. Pastor Frank doesn't get up here to preach every morning and every Sunday morning, or Alan or myself, you know, just to get the Sunday out of the way with We keep teaching the same thing that hope is found in Scripture. All your hope is found in the Word of God. We keep teaching the same thing. How many of you believe it, really believe it? Do you read every day? Do you read for an hour a day? Don't give me this 15-minute stuff, please. A chapter? You're going to read a chapter? Guys, I, I don't believe in just reading a chapter. How are you going to get the meat in the Word of God if you're just going to be reading a chapter a day? It doesn't take long. And I know, I'm in business myself. I struggle five days a week because I somehow have to focus on my business and I've got to be remembering the Lord during this time and I'm wanting to do the same at the same time. you know. And it's really hard. So I've got the business that I've got to work through the day so I try and get up a bit earlier. I can spend time with the Lord every morning. An hour, an hour reading scripture. Maybe, maybe, maybe think about flicking off the entertainment. I'll read an hour of the word of God. Do you think maybe read? Romans takes an hour and a half. You can go through the entire book of Romans in an hour and a half. You want to read the Bible? 70 hours, guys. 70 hours. No, 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 no. It's at least a 1,000. No. It takes 70 hours to read through the Bible if you're reading at the same speed that you can speak. Last point. 27th of February, I had a text. I just want to read you this text. The young man I preached over in Ballarat this is what he writes hi I know it's been a while but I'm really struggling right now I really don't see any use in being here anymore it all seems too hard and I'm not scared of dying how do you convince someone who isn't scared to die that it's a bad idea Incredible thing to find on your text, you know, on your phone. I didn't get the text until a couple of hours after it was sent because I left my phone at home. I think the 27th was the date we might have been here. Or, but anyway, it came a couple of hours later. I couldn't text him back. How do you text him back? Well, don't. You know, I phoned him. He was all right. He started to do a little bit better, you know. But I said two things to him. Two things that he needs to consider. Just because you have peace on this side of life that dying is going to be okay doesn't necessarily mean that if you take your own life it's going to be all over. Peace on this side of death is no assurance that the other side will not be perpetual torment for the rest of your existence if you decide to take your own life. That was point number one. Point number two. While there's breath in you, there's always hope. There's always hope. What are you putting your hope in? You're putting your hope in the one that doesn't change. Are you putting your hope in the one that made promises from 4,000 years ago and is capable of making it come to be? Are you putting the promise in the one that has not changed nor ever will change? Are you putting in the promise in the one that says, I have loved you and I love you and my son is given to you, that you will have salvation, that you would have hope? You're putting your hope in being accepted by men this side of death. Ah, oh, If you want to please men, you're not going to please God. And if you're going to be putting your hope in this side of death, guys, you're missing out on the greatest hope and the greatest joy that you can ever have, the greatest security. You could walk down the street with a wheelbarrow filled with your possessions, whistling for joy, while the rich man looks out of his window thinking, what's he got that I don't? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for your words. We thank you for the wonderful joy and the wonderful truth of Scripture. We thank you, dear Lord, that your hope is given unto us if we are indeed born again. If we are saved by the Spirit of God, we have that solid rock and that solid faith and the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has promised that he will never leave us nor forsake us, the one that has promised to us that everything that he begins, he finishes and completes, and the one that says to us in every way, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Father, we know that we have that salvation. Let us, with our own time, dear Lord, go away from today and live for you and share this gospel to all people, but indeed that we ourselves will continue to be changed. Father, we thank you for the challenge and we thank you, dear Lord, for the wonderful joy Of knowing our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.